Well, have a seat. We're going to do something a little bit different tonight. We have some questions and some some kind of answers uh, that we want to give. What I want to do is just kind of sum up generally the situation at Corinth and then show you some of the answers and attempt to answer them. And, and hopefully this will become something that will... Uh, again, add an interactive element so that when you hear a question being answered, you might think, I've had that question before, but I was too afraid to write it this week. So next time, I'll write one of my own next time. And we just want to see if this is something that is beneficial. We did this once before years ago, and we may just do a book of the Bible, and then the last session, come up with some questions that you have and try to answer them. But we have spent a good chunk of time in 1 Corinthians as well as in 2 Corinthians. And there was a hiatus in between when we went through the book of Ruth, I believe. But we've spent some considerable time in these two books. And we know that Corinth was a key city. It was key in terms of Paul's ministry. It was key in general in the ancient world. And um, it was a crossroads because of its location. If you just remember back, it was on a a little portion of land called an isthmus, three and a half miles wide. And so that if you wanted to go from Macedonia and northern Greece down south into that island peninsula uh, called the Peloponnesian Peninsula, then you had to go through Corinth. And if you wanted to sail from one side of uh, the trade route to the other side of the trade route, you would go through Corinth. Here was the problem. The problem was there was a cape down below 200 miles that would divert you, or you could try to go through that little stretch of three-and-a-half-mile land. So if it was a smaller boat, they'd take the boat out of the water and transport the boat over land three-and-a-half miles, put it back in the water from the Adriatic to the Aegean Sea. Or if it was a huge cargo ship, they would simply unload the cargo, bring the cargo over land, put it in another ship, and continue the route. Because of that, it stands to reason that Corinth would be a very cosmopolitan town. It would be um, a place where there would be a free exchange of ideas and culture, theologies, ideologies, and philosophies. It would be a place where you would expect a lot of fleshly activity because a lot of people were traveling north and south, east and west, and so the city would provide amenities for such travelers. That was where Corinth, the church of Corinth, had its base in a very wicked town. Paul spent 18 months in this city. It's the second longest time he spent in any one location that we know of. The first was in Ephesus. He spent a few years there. When Paul went to Corinth, he met up with two people, Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife team. They were all tent makers. And it was Paul's practice to go into the synagogue and to preach the gospel. He got really tossed out of the synagogue once Timothy and Silas joined him when they came down from Macedonia. He must have felt emboldened because his friends were around. And so he got pretty hot and heavy in the synagogue, was kicked out, stayed with a guy named Justice who lived next to the synagogue and continued his ministry. A church was founded. Most of them were Jews at the beginning, saved from his synagogue ministry. Later on, it became predominantly non-Jew, Gentile. 
And they were, at first at least, from the lower class. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, it says, You see your calling, brethren, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. The church was comprised of common, simple folk. But these common, simple folk posed a huge headache to Paul. They were very divisive. As soon as Paul left, there were problems in the church. The minute he left, so that he had to send Timothy to correct the problems. He sent a letter. 1 Corinthians is the second letter, because in 1 Corinthians he mentions a letter that he sent previously. So that 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is really 3 Corinthians. I know it sounds confusing, but that's how it worked. He sent at least three, some think four, other authors think as many as five letters to this church. They gave him grief. Many did not acknowledge his apostleship. There was divisions in the very body that he sought to bring unity to. A household that was in that town called the household of Chloe, in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3 they are mentioned, they informed Paul, probably by letter or personal emissary, that there were divisions in the church which caused Paul to want to get on the bandwagon again and write them a letter about this. When we come to 2 Corinthians, there's a different tone. 1 Corinthians, you remember, we deal with problem after problem after problem with that church. Problem of divisions, problem of carnality, problem of false doctrine, problems of divorce, problems of uh, church discipline, problems of concerning the resurrection. It's just one problem being solved after another. It's more of a stern letter. It is didactic. It is informative. It is uh, educational, but it is a stern-toned letter, whereas 2 Corinthians is far more personal, far more affectionate. And if you remember, I'll just refresh your memory before we get into this question and answer thing, there were four reasons Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. Reason number one, to encourage the church to forgive the sinning brother that Paul told the church to kick out in 1 Corinthians. Okay, he suffered enough, bring him back in, encourage him, love on him. Second reason, to explain to the Corinthians why Paul hadn't come when he said he would come. Where is he? I thought he'd come. What kind of an apostle is he making a promise like that and not showing up? And we see that God was in charge of his weekly planner. But also, Paul said, you know, it's a good thing I didn't come because I'd let you have it. In fact, he says, if you want me to come, we saw last week, I'll come, but it will be with a harsh tone in my voice and in my demeanor. So he wanted to spare them that. The third reason he wrote the letter was to enlist their financial support for the church in Jerusalem. That is, he was taking an offering for the mother church that had suffered persecution, lost their jobs, and was fi financially incapable of just taking care of itself. So Paul was saying, I'll get a collection from the fruit of that church all over the world, the Gentile believers. And the fourth reason was to enlist no, no, was to establish 
his own apostleship among that church since it was being questioned by some who came in and were very legalistic. So that is sort of a brief overview of where we've been in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And we have asked people last week and this last weekend to write some questions pertaining to it. And so we have a few. Now to help me out with that, we have uh, one of our own favorite news uh, anchormen, Steve Stucker. Steve, come on out. And he's going to give us the weather while he's at it too. Now, let me just say this. If I can't answer the question, Steve is going to answer it for you afterwards because after all, he knows the weather. <laughs> He's like, i got an inside track here. But Steve was telling me a little bit about himself and about how he came to the Lord and his background in radio and television. And I just wanted uh, you to hear that. Steve, how are you tonight? We recognize that voice. And uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to Christ. That's great. Steve, by the way, what is the weather going to be like the next few days? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get started then with our questions. Steve's going to read them. And um, we're going to, I think, put them up on the screen so you can see them and just try to give a stab at them one at a time. The first one comes from Micah. It concerns 1 Corinthians 13 to 10. Does the perfect refer to completion of the New Testament, the second coming, You know, when I read this question, I thought, what an insightful question. I think we have covered this. In fact, some of the uh, answers we've covered at different times during our study. But, you know, first of all, not everyone is here for all of them. And second of all, you can cover a lot of information and not retain it all. I understand that. I don't even retain all the stuff that I research and, and study. But that's a very good question. Let me answer it by taking one possibility at a time. I do not believe it refers to the completion of the New Testament. In fact, I believe it refers to the eternal state, which I think was uh, the last one uh, on the issue, or number C. On the, uh, and that's my final answer, and I'll tell you why. Um, the idea of having a complete New Testament was a foreign concept to the Corinthians. There's nowhere in the book or in any of the writings where Paul says, oh, by the way, in such and such a year, at such and such a time, this book that we are writing is going to be done. He was writing letters. And they became known as Scripture, but the idea that Scripture was being written, called the New Testament, and would have a completion date was a foreign concept uh, to the Corinthians at that time. If it refers to the completion of Scripture, then that would mean that prophecy and knowledge have already been stopped since Paul says, when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. And he lists prophecy, tongues, spiritual gifts, and knowledge. And we know that's not true. 
We know it's not true because during the tribulation period, which hasn't happened yet, it's coming up still, there's going to be two prophets that come on the scene. And uh, in chapter 11, they will prophesy, it says, for 1,260 days. So if uh, it means when the New Testament is complete, all of these gifts will cease, including prophecy, we have a problem with Revelation 11 because prophecy emerges, it's strong. For three and a half years, these two guys prophesy on the scene. And something else. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 of that, and you can turn there if you're trying to navigate your way around it in your brain. It says, we see in part, but then we will see face to face. So whenever this, whatever this is that is complete, it will be a time when we will see, not dimly, not figuratively, but we're going to see the Lord face to face. That hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened in the Bible. It's a revelation of God, but we don't see the face of God as we read the Scripture. In fact, God said to Moses, no man can see my face, implying in the state that he's in the flesh, and live. Charles Ryrie, in answering this issue in the Ryrie Study Bible, a strict dispensationalist, by the way, said, some understand this to refer to the completion of the canon of Scripture. But that would mean that we now see more clearly than Paul did. Very insightful. So I can take that off my list. It doesn't, that which is perfect, doesn't refer to the completion of the New Testament. Nor does it refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I don't think it does. Even though, in all fairness, I just mentioned Charles Ryrie. He was a teacher at Dallas Seminary and author of the Ryrie Study Bible. He does believe it refers to the second coming. And I don't, and I'll tell you why I don't, for two reasons. Reason number one, uh, the word perfect is teleon. It's a neuter adjective in Greek. It doesn't refer to a person or a personality, but something neuter. And also, we would have the same problem in dealing with the the subject of knowledge and prophecy, since the Bible predicts that knowledge will continue into and through the kingdom age, knowledge will cover the face of the earth as waters cover the sea, I don't think it refers to the second coming. The third option is that refers to Christian maturity. Christian maturity. And and here's why. That might sound strange to you, but uh, the word perfect, teleos or teleon, sometimes is used to speak of completion in terms of spiritual growth that is a a mature believer, a fully mature believer. For instance, Paul writes to the Colossians and says, our desire is to present every man perfect, teleos, in Christ, mature, grown up, fully developed in Christ. Um, But... Even those who are spiritually mature, and uh, by the way, that is a pretty subjective call because uh, for me to say, well, I am spiritually mature, I then have to turn around and say, I have a long way to go. It would mean, though, that those who are spiritually mature don't need knowledge anymore, don't cease to use gifts including knowledge. So some have said that which is perfect refers to the complete church 
at the rapture, when God is completely done with his work in the church age and we get raptured up into heaven. If that's the case, we still have to deal with the issue of prophecy during the tribulation period in Revelation 11. Now, the way I see it is that it was plainly understood. It wasn't obscured. They didn't have to go through a little list of what it was and what it wasn't. It was obvious that he was talking about when we are face-to-face with the Lord in the heavenly state, what the questioner calls the eternal state. By the way, that's a good term. Now, let me describe to you what the unfolding of the New Testament gives as uh, uh, sort of a headliner of coming events. Now, not everybody agrees with this, and that's okay. Uh, you can be as wrong as you'd like, but the way I see it <laughs> is that, first of all, there's, there's going to be a rapture, a gathering together of the church into heaven, followed by a seven-year tribulation period, three and a half years of peace, the last three and a half years called the Great Tribulation Period on the earth. The end of that seven-year period, Jesus comes from heaven to the earth in the second coming. After the second coming, there is a judgment followed by a millennium, a thousand years, according to Revelation 20. After the millennium, there's another judgment, and after that is the eternal state, which includes the new Jerusalem. It seems to me that Paul is getting these people to see the difference between something that is temporary and something that is permanent. Gifts are temporary. They're not going to last forever. And they're not going to last when you're face-to-face with the Lord. You won't need them any longer. And that which is perfect then refers to that completeness when we're in the presence of God. I'm going to read the text to you in its context. It says, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part... We prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I, be, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Or now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know just as I am known. You get the context then. Here you have a group called the Corinthians who made a huge deal of spiritual gifts. And Paul says, as good as they are, as important as they are, I will write one word over this pile of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. It's the word temporary. That's temporary. Love is eternal. And that is to be preferred above all else. Now, it's easy to understand it then. In the eternal state, you won't need somebody prophesying. You won't need somebody teaching you the Bible. You won't need any kind of special prayer language. You're going to be in the very presence of God. All of those things become obsolete. You don't need teaching seminars, CDs, tapes, books. You don't need the church as well as as far as we have it now where we grow spiritually. We're going to be mature and complete at that time. So... Of all those answers he gave, C is my final answer. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, okay. (laughs) No, actually, you have to say it next time. 
Boy, I tell you, that's a, a very honest question, isn't it? You know? And I, I think uh, that we, we all face that. I think that that struggle that Steve just read, that question that Nancy posed, is something we all have to deal with, and you ought to know that the early church had to deal with it. The Corinthians had to deal with it. We'll mention that in a moment. And the church of Ephesus also had to deal with it. We have a couple of examples in the Scripture of how individuals as well as groups, can become spiritually stagnant. Why? Well, when we are born again, we have the life of God within us. As Second Peter writes, or Peter writes in his second epistle, chapter 1, um, that we, have, we are partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So we have the life of God in us. But unless we tend that life, unless we grow, unless we develop, we're not going to become like our father. Just like a child grows and develops through doing certain things and taking in certain things, until a child does that, he's not going to become mature. But when he does, he starts taking on characteristics like his father or mother. You look at a child and you go, boy, you look a lot like your mom. Or you're looking more and more like your dad. So as we grow spiritually, people ought to be saying, you know, you look a lot like, you remind me a lot of Jesus. More and more I see the character of God in you. Now to do that, we we have to go back to the basics. Um, We need food and exercise. We need that physically, we need it spiritually. Unless you eat physically and exercise physically, you won't be all that you could be. No, you'll be alive, barely, but not for long. And spiritually, we need food and exercise. Food, meaning the Scripture, the Word of God. And I would add to that fellowship, because when we're in fellowship with other people, and there's an accountability, and there's an intimacy of relationship, and we hear what God is doing in his or her life, that stimulates our growth as well. Then we need exercise. And in exercise, I would put prayer as well as telling others about Jesus, witnessing. Prayer is like the oxygen of heaven. You need to breathe heavenly air. You need to be in contact with God. The more you witness, you'll probably be praying more because you'll find out, I don't have all the answers. I need to find them. Lord, what is it? Lord, I rely on you. This is hard. Now, there are similarities between physical and spiritual growth, but there are also differences. For the most part, physical growth happens automatically. In other words, uh, you don't stop at age 12 and say, Mom, I've decided not to grow another inch. You can't do that. As long as there is an intake of food and some kind of exercise, you are naturally going to grow, whereas you can stop spiritual growth. And we can grow as much as we want to. Again, Second Peter chapter 1, Therefore add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and a whole list of additives. So when it comes to spiritual growth, there is a control factor. That's why we're commanded to grow in grace. Now she mentioned in the question, um, according to First and Second Corinthians, how do I grow? Well, you know, there was a problem with stunted growth in Corinth. In fact, according to Paul, you are in one of three categories. 
You are either natural, you are spiritual, which you could say the supernatural person, or you are carnal or unnatural. Here it is in 1 Corinthians, if you want to turn there, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, toward the end of that chapter and the beginning of the next one, the 14th verse of chapter 2, listen to these categories. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That's one category, the natural man. Verse 15 is the second category. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. So you have natural, you have spiritual. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. This isn't natural. This isn't supernatural. This is what I would call unnatural. Why unnatural? Because you're being pulled by two different value systems. And you haven't figured out where to land yet. It's the most miserable place to be. He says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, verse 2, for until now you were not able to receive it, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Something about this third category, this stagnant, stale believer in Corinth. He was a believer. He writes in verse 1, to brethren. He calls them brethren in that verse. That is, they're born again. They're just not living fully in that spiritual realm. Another thing to notice about them, he calls them babes in Christ. In other words, they have stunted spiritual growth. The same issue that is brought up in this question. I've been with the Lord 13 years, but I'm the epitome of a stagnant believer. It is a hard place to be in. I've been there on many occasions. I just feel like I'm not growing. And there are factors for it. The usual, to paint with the broom here, issue is that we have enough of Christ in us to be miserable in the world, but still enough of the world in us to be miserable in Christ. We're sort of walking on the fence instead of saying, I'm here now. I'm fully serving the Lord. Now, I love evangelism. We applaud every time somebody gets saved. But I think I said last week or a couple weeks ago, we ought to applaud spiritual growth. That's what John said. In Third John, I have no greater joy but then to know that my children walk in the truth. That's spiritual growth. And it's possible, is it not, for somebody to be a Christian for 25, 30 years or so, but still be stunted and act like they just got saved. So we need to grow. What are the characteristics? Remember I mentioned food and exercise? Well, look at verse 2. He mentions their spiritual diet. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. You can't give a three-month-old baby a T-bone steak successfully unless you have a nice blender and make, you know, 
a steak malt or something for the protein, but they can't chew it. They can't handle it. They need milk. They need baby food, something that is easily digestible. One of the marks of a stagnant believer is that they revert back to easily digestible truths instead of moving on past the doctrines of baptism, past regeneration, past the basic stuff, on into maturity. Paul writes to the Hebrews, and he says to them in chapter 5, By this time you ought to be teachers, but now you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have need of milk, not of solid food. You see, spiritual immaturity renders a believer incapable of the richest truths in the Scripture. Remember Jesus said to His disciples, I still have a lot of things to tell you guys, but you're not able to receive it. You can't handle it. Let me give you a suggestion. If that is the case and you find yourself recycling through the basic stuff, learn how to study the Bible on your own. Get a good book. There's lots of them that are simple books on how to study the Bible for yourself, how to dig into the context, to the background, the unity of the Scripture, the principles of interpretation, and applying it to yourself because you'll be able to look at a text and outline it and see words that are frequently used and decide if they're something you're to act on or if in the context it means something different. And as you mine the truth of the Word for yourself, That's where the richest dividends come when you learn to do it on your own. Something else Paul mentions is spiritual activity. Remember I mentioned diet and exercise, food and exercise. In verse 3 of the text we just read, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, For you are still carnal. For where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? A baby is cranky. A baby is selfish. A baby is irritable. Not all the time, but enough of the time to know that that child has an old nature that needs redemption. A carnal believer is someone who is cranky and irritable and divisive. That was the problem in Corinth. They want the attention on themselves. And that's one of the marks is, again, food and exercise. So we need to learn to study the Word for ourselves. We need to learn to get involved in the right exercise program spiritually. And I'll tell you, one of the things that will help you, it will help you to start witnessing, telling people about your faith, even if it's been a while since you've done it. I bet you can look back and remember how neat it was the first time you led a person to Christ or was able to share your testimony with them. Do that again. And it's going to be scary at first. Ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit and do it again. In fact, that is what Jesus tells us to do. Remember the church at Ephesus? He says, you guys are a great bunch of people. I know your labor. I know that you work hard. You're going through all the motions They were a hard-working, energetic church involved with activities. They were discerning. He says, you can't bear them who are evil. You test those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. So they were really skilled in their apologetics. But they lost something. They left their first love. 
And we know what that means. It doesn't mean their love for each other, but it's their simple love and devotion for Christ, right? You've left that. You didn't lose it anywhere. You left it. You got so involved in stuff, but that, that simple intimacy is gone. And so what does Jesus tell them to do? Remember from where you are fallen. Think back. Recall the days. Go home tonight and remember the day or the night you first prayed to receive Christ and how you felt and what happened in the next few days after that. Get in touch with those feelings. This is the same advice we tell young couples who say, we're not in love anymore. Go back and remember the night you said, I can't live without her. I'm going to ask her to marry me. Get in touch with those feelings again. Jesus said, remember from where you are fallen, return, go back, and repeat or do those first works over again. And I'll commend that to you. Go back to the basics. Bible study. Learn how to do it for yourself rather than being spoon-fed. Number two, fellowship with other believers in a meaningful way. Now, fellowship doesn't mean coffee and donuts. Well, we had a fellowship breakfast today. No, did you really have fellowship over spiritual issues in your life and get accountable and deep over those issues? Prayer. Talk to God. Talk to God freely. Talk to God more than just, Good night, Lord. Take a walk. One gal was ingenious with this. She found she was going through the same period of stagnation She said, I have no time. I'm doing so many uh, housework and chores around the house, all the kids that I have. So she developed a prayer line, literally a line across the room that was in front of her ironing board. She thought, I have a clothesline out back. I'm going to have a prayer line in the ironing room. So she put three by five cards and she attached them to the prayer line and she, she was ironing and just going one request at a time, praying to the Lord. And then telling other people about your faith in Christ. Those are the basics. You've heard them before. Return and do them again, Jesus says. Um, I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. I'll go through um, Well, we have a lot of questions there. See, what's the first part of that question? Well, the first part is, uh, why does anyone pray for the gift Well, that is a good question because it's something we should be at least open to and see if God wants us to have it. You know, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and he said, don't despise prophecy. The New Testament anticipates prophets, Right? Jesus said, and I will send apostles and prophets to you. We see that uh, as a very important gift in the New Testament, Agabus was a prophet in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 21. He made predictions about a famine and about Paul's arrest, and both of them came to pass. Also, Peter himself, quoting Joel chapter 2, said, It shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So Paul says that in the church, pursue spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 14.1, but rather, rather that you may prophesy. So it's a valid question. Why not pray for the gift of prophecy? But we do have to understand why Paul said that. 
He didn't say prophecy's the best gift, better than any other gift. No, he meant something very specific by that. Let me read a little further down in 1 Corinthians 14, in verse 2 and 3. He says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Then in the fifth verse, I wish that you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So what's the context? The context is the public assembly. He's saying, I wish all of you spoke in tongues, but not in public, but rather something we can understand. We want to hear a message that is discernible and is filled with truth that we can understand in our own language. So in the church meeting itself, it is more preferable to have prophecy than tongues. Now, there was an underlying problem. The underlying problem was the church of Corinth lacked love. They wanted to be show-offy about their spiritual gifts. It's my turn. I'm going to speak out in a tongue. And Paul says, you need to love one another. That's what's eternal. That's what's permanent. So prophecy is important. It is to be preferred over tongues in a public assembly because no one gets edified unless you understand what's being said. Therefore, an interpretation is required. Before we get to the second part of that question, though, let me clear up an issue. Paul said... Covet earnestly the best gifts. Which poses an interesting question. Well, which is the best gift? Somebody would say, prophecy. Another person would say, tongues. Another person would say, healing. (laughs) Well, let me answer it this way. Let me answer that with a question. Which pair of shoes is the best pair of shoes? Well, it... And don't say Nike or some name brand. (laughs) It all depends what you want to do. If you walked into a shoe store and say, I want your best pair of shoes, they would say, I need more information. Do you want to run or do you want to go to a wedding? If you want to go to a wedding, you don't want the white tennis shoes. But if you want to run, you don't want the wingtips. So a different shoe is for a different exercise or operation. What's the best tool? Again, it depends what you want to build or do. What's the best gift? It depends. It could be for some the gift of teaching. It could be for someone else the gift of helps. It could be for somebody else the gift of tongues, for somebody else the gift of prophecy. It all depends on what God wants done in a particular situation. Now, there's another part to that question, Steve. What is it? Would you speak in tongues for us real quick so we can hear? No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't have him do that. Because unless there's an interpretation, it would be not valid. But um, let me read the reference that this question is based upon. It says, It would seem that the gift of tongues is not for everyone, yet some say it is. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29, Paul asks, Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. 
Now, that's a rhetorical question that obviates an answer of no. Are all apostles? No. Do all prophesy? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. The issue is, why not? Why don't all speak in tongues? Well, it could be, first of all, that the Holy Spirit hasn't given a prayer language to one person, but has given a prayer language to another. Some will object to this. If it is a prayer language primarily and not to be used primarily for the whole church, why wouldn't God give it to everyone? So then perhaps all don't speak in tongues because they don't learn about it and they don't appropriate it when they actually could use it. I think what Paul means by this when he says, are all apostles, do all speak in tongues, is that in the public assembly, that's the context, all of these gifts that are mentioned are gifts to be used in a public setting, whether it's apostles or prophets or teachers or workers of miracles or gifts of healings, or tongues, I think the context that is in the public assembly, all are not called to speak in tongues because it requires an interpretation for the sake of edification, so it's to be confined to a prayer language. And Steve, what's the third part of that? What about the distinction between Well, here's a couple fundamentals about the gift of tongues. First of all, it is a language directed to God. It's not directed to people. It's not evangelism. I don't preach the gospel in tongues. And we know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2. He who speaks in an unknown tongue does not speak to men, Paul said, but to God. And in Acts chapter 10 and in Acts chapter 2, they heard them speaking something that magnified or glorified God. It was a praise. It was a prayer. It was an adoration. It wasn't a message to human beings. Therefore, the concept in some churches of a message in tongues, as it's called, is an unscriptural idea. There's no message to people. It's only a message from the heart to God. It doesn't speak to man but to God. So that's number one. Number two, tongues is a language that the speaker does not understand. When I pray in an unknown tongue, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, my spirit prays, but my intellect or my understanding, he says, is unfruitful. I don't know what I'm saying. Number three, no one else knows what I'm saying. Therefore, it requires an interpretation to be spoken publicly. Now, here's, here's the problem that is brought up with this question. It seems we have a contradiction. If all that is true, and I believe it is since it's the Bible, what do we do with Acts chapter 2? How do you take Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and put them together? Because in Acts chapter 2, we have a human language that unbelievers are listening to and understanding. They're understanding it. They're not believers. There's no interpreter with them, and they're not Christians. In Acts chapter 2, it says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Glossos, a tongue, a language. As the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because they heard them speak in his own language. They heard Christians speaking in 
a tongue, a language that was not theirs, but was the listener's. Yet, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, nobody understands it unless you have an interpreter. First of all, neither Acts nor 1 Corinthians was evangelism. It wasn't the preaching of the gospel. We hear them in our own tongue speak the wonderful works of God or magnify the Lord. It was worship. But some have interpreted Acts chapter 2 by saying this was a linguistic miracle. There was a language barrier so that the Jews who were outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, because they didn't understand Hebrew or Aramaic, needed a linguistic miracle for them to understand the gospel. That's not the case. First of all, if communication were the aim, communicating the gospel to unbelievers, all they would have to do is speak Greek, not Hebrew, not Aramaic, for Koine Greek was the lingua franca. It was the the known language of the world at the time. If the idea was communicating the gospel. And that's not really the case. Because as I read the text, they were already speaking in tongues and the crowd then assembled in response to hearing this unusual thing. It wasn't like they all stood up in a row like a choir and said, Ready, boys? One, two, three, four. They were doing it in the context of the upper room, upper city of Jerusalem, so that the unbelievers hearing it gathered and said, Wow! They're speaking in our own dialects the wonderful works of God. Homer Kent writes on this. He's a professor of the New Testament in Greek. He said, This is not a foreign language used for mission work, because Paul the Apostle never used it nor spoke of it as such, though he himself possessed the Corinthian-type gift. The Corinthian-type gift. Now, the basic difference between Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is that one requires a human interpreter, the other did not. And why didn't it? It was the day of Pentecost. It was the day the church was born. It was attention-getting both to the Christians as well as to the non-Christians. The Acts type of gift was to get the attention of the outsiders. The Corinthian gift was for private edification or prayer language unless it followed an interpretation. So the Corinthian gift is a special type of prayer language. The other one was worship and prayer, but it was done in an attention-getting way for the sake of non-believers. That's the difference. A good question, but I think that part of the problem is that the one who asked it made a distinction between God and Jesus. And we, I think the distinction we have to make, and it's not semantic distinction, is that we distinguish between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is God, certainly, but in the New Testament, though it teaches that there is one God, it teaches that Jesus is called God and the Holy Spirit is called God. But it's a good question, because if... We believe in the Trinity, but one God, one person, with uh, one God with three separate persons, co-equal, co-eternal. Who exactly do we pray to? Will we offend one if we don't include one? Will 
Are we supposed to say, Father, and then after a while, now I'm talking to you, Jesus, and I don't want to leave you out, Holy Spirit. Well, it's best to go back to what Jesus taught us. He said, when you pray, you don't even need to come through me, or I don't even have to talk to the Father. But you can pray directly to the Father in the name of Jesus. Now, I think that if you were to pray to Jesus, He's not going to get offended. Or if you pray to the Holy Spirit, He's not going to get offended. But the point is, Jesus taught you to go directly to God the Father. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Go directly to God. Now, we know that Stephen prayed to Jesus when he was about to be martyred. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But keep in mind why. He had a vision of Jesus at the time. He saw Jesus welcoming him into heaven as Jesus stood up to receive him. So in that context, he prayed to Jesus because he saw him. But this is the way it works. We're to pray to the Father. We're to pray in the name of Jesus. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to make what we pray interceding according to the will of God. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, we don't always know how we, or to the Romans, we don't always know how we should pray as we ought. And because of that, he said, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. So, we pray for something, but the Holy Spirit searching our hearts and our needs and searching the will of the Father can make our intercession according to the will of the Father. I've given you sort of a flaky example of that before. Let's say you come to God and say, Lord, I've prayed long and hard about this, and I've really researched this, and I need a brand new speedboat. I need one, Lord. It's, it's vital. It's survival. And when you uttered that, you probably have the Holy Spirit coming along next to you and saying, Father, disregard that request. What he really needs is this. Grant that, Lord. So the Trinity is involved in our prayer and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Isn't that good to know? Oh, maybe I didn't pray for the right thing. Well, the Holy Spirit did. Did you write this question, Steve? <laughs> you, know, you know why that's a good question? Because we often feel, well, I was baptized, but then I didn't walk with the Lord for a while, and now I'm really on fire for the Lord like I was when I was first baptized. Therefore, I better get dunked again just to make sure. Okay, kind of seal the deal. Well... If you look at the New Testament, we don't find rebaptism except for one occurrence. It's in Acts chapter 19. Paul goes to Ephesus and he asks them what they believe and if they've been baptized. And they said that, uh, he said, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said, we didn't even know or hear that there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized? He asked them. In the baptism of John, they said. So he explained to them fully Jesus Christ and baptized them in the name of Jesus. 
That was the only case of rebaptism. They had been immersed in baptism. It was a baptism for the remission of sins, but it wasn't in the name of Jesus. That is, under the authority of Jesus Christ, having heard the full gospel. So, in line with that then, it seems that if when you were baptized, you lacked the essential element, i.e. a personal relationship with Christ based upon true repentance and faith, then by all means, get baptized and make it the real one. But it doesn't mean that you have to get baptized and then rebaptized, and then in four months, if you sin again, baptize again. Any more than you get born again and again and again and again, you get born again once. You get saved. And you might lapse and you might fall and you come in repentance, but it's not like God says, well, you got to get wet again. Because baptism, according to Romans, indicates death, burial, and resurrection. Walking in newness of life. If you haven't been walking in newness of life, you repent at that point and you move on. And you make that commitment. But rebaptism is really for those who hadn't been baptized right the first time. They didn't have the full knowledge. Based upon First and Second Corinthians and Paul's teaching of God's love for us and all of God's attributes, contrast our loving God to the Allah of the Muslim religion. This is going to be the last question. In fact, we're right on the edge of the hour, so I'm going to sum it up briefly. What a huge difference there is. First of all, Islam has morphed over time. It's changed. It was based in a tribalism, a nomadic group of tribes that were stationed at several oases around Saudi Arabia and then spread around the Middle East. The worship system was not monotheistic originally, but polytheistic. There were many deities that were worshipped in these oases. Most of these tribes worshipped a host of local deities, but principally three big deities. They worshipped Malat, the goddess of fate, Anat, the goddess of the sun, and Uzzah, the goddess of the morning. Over these three goddesses was Allah, the creator father of these three. He was seen as separate and distinct with an unbridgeable gulf between man and himself. Today, the modernist Islamic person, the modern Muslim, has a problem with Christianity for two reasons. Reason number one, the deity of Christ. God would not condescend to become a man. And number two, the crucifixion. Not only would he not become a man, but the death of God is the ultimate blasphemy. According to Islam, there is this gulf between God and man that is an unbridgeable gulf. In fact, one of their theologians uses that term. It's an unbridgeable gulf. We know that the difference between that and Christianity is that Jesus bridged the gulf, becoming a man, bringing holy father and sinful man together by his blood, reconciling man. It's not an unbridgeable gulf. And so I would sum it all up, and here's the difference. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. No matter what you have done, you can walk away going, I'm forgiven. That gulf has been bridged. The blood of Jesus Christ washes away all my sins. I've shared this on a communion night, and I close with this. It's a testimony of a Sunni Muslim who came to Jesus Christ. And this is written about in the book called Religious Traditions of the Word 
of the world, excuse me, by James Lewis and William Travis. Here's a little portion of it. This Muslim writes, In the Koran, there are so many things one is not to do. It is full of orders and taboos. One, uh, once, Muhammad told his daughter Fatima that even if you commit sin, no one will save you, even though you were the daughter of the Prophet himself. If all are sinners and there is no escape for forgiveness for them, then heaven will be an empty place, he writes. There is no forgiveness to be found in Islam, writes this ex-Muslim, though it helped me to understand that there is need for the sinner to find forgiveness since all are sinners. In Christianity, there is forgiveness of sins, but not only that, there is power whereby you are able to live the life of victory. What then is the principal difference between the Christian faith and Islam? He writes, in Islam, you have to give an account of your deeds, all that you have done, but the Bible says that all are sinners and none are sinless. All the prophets of Islam spoke about the righteous path. Christ not only spoke about righteousness, but he is the one who can give forgiveness and lead to the path of righteousness and salvation. That is a huge difference. Well... We're out of time, as you can see, and we've covered uh, six of these questions. Some of them were actually three in one, so we've covered about nine or ten of them. But um, let's close in prayer. Steve, would you lead us? Amen. Let's stand and worship the answer, the way, the truth, and the life.